Welcome to the Anthro Now podcast series, a collection of conversations about the relevance of anthropology to public life. These podcasts can be found online at www.anthronow.com. My name is Christine Miladic. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at New York University. I'm speaking today with Emily Martin, Professor of Anthropology at NYU. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I asked to speak with you today as part of a new podcast series that will be produced as part of Anthropology Now. For those people unfamiliar with Anthropology Now, can you offer a brief explanation of it? Sure. Anthropology Now is an initiative to bring academic and scholarly work in the field of anthropology, cultural anthropology especially, to a wider public beyond the academy. It's composed of a website, anthronow.com, where the podcast will be reachable, and a print magazine that comes out three times a year, which is full of uh, essays, but also images and different genres of writing. All, All of this has the goal of Um, making the insights of anthropology available, even if you're not formally trained in the discipline. When did you launch this initiative, and how did Anthropology Now unfold? It started about 10 years ago, I think, when a publisher, Dean Birkenkamp, visited me at Princeton, and I was nursing this idea that anthropology could have a magazine like Psychology Today. He thought this was a fabulous idea, and the two of us just kept meeting and thinking and planning and hoping over the next about five years. And in the meantime, he moved to a different job. He's now the president of his own publishing company, Paradigm Publishers, and had the wherewithal to help us uh, capitalize this enterprise. And so we had financial support from a very um, dedicated and committed publisher. And in the meantime, we had worked within the professional organization, the Anthropology Association, to build up a cadre of uh, senior scholars, junior scholars, and graduate students who would support the writing and audiovisual materials for the magazine when it launched. So it actually launched five years ago, and we're in our fourth year of publication. Who are the contributors to AnthroNow, and who do you envision the audience to be? The contributors are mostly professionally trained anthropologists, such as professors at universities or anthropologists in training, like graduate students. And sometimes in the future, I hope it might include undergraduate students. Really anyone who has read anthropology or studied it in some form and has an idea about how some aspect of their daily life or daily life somewhere could be analyzed with an anthropological bent. We also uh, include, we like to include different genres of writing, so people who write poetry or uh, do drawings with text or photographs or uh, any other kind of visual media, something we really welcome. So in general, it's, it's meant to translate professional professionally uh, conceptualized anthropology into a popularly understood medium, but we really welcome anyone to contribute. We do have what's called peer review. This means that the publications that are accepted are more valued in the academy, and it means that someone like a junior 
um, professor, an assistant professor, could take the time to write an article for us, have it peer-reviewed and published, and it would count in their employment record. And what peer review means is that we send submissions, articles, drawings, poems, whatever it might be, out to people we feel could give us a judicious assessment of whether this is valuable, whether it contains insights and is factually accurate, uh, if that's appropriate. And then we work with the authors extremely closely and over sometimes a fairly long period of time to uh, improve the writing or improve the presentation so that what comes out in the magazine or is it appears on the website is the very best that we can do. So we welcome really all kinds of materials, all kinds of uh, insights from people in all different positions, as long as everyone understands we have to uh, exert editorial judgment over what is uh, submitted. And the audience then is... Potentially anybody. Exactly. So the audience, our dream would be that the audience could be anybody, that it could be read the way something like Psychology Today is read, uh, even on a newsstand, although that's very complicated. But our um, immediate ability to reach really general audiences, it's difficult. And so we have successfully reached students in anthropology classes and we are on an electronic database called JSTOR, which has brought in a great many subscriptions and uh, downloads from in international um, students all over the world. Not just in anthropology, but in all kinds of allied fields like sociology, urban planning, psychology, psychiatry, medicine. So that's been very successful, the international reach through an electronic database. We'd love to be on the newsstands. That was always the the original dream was to be on, you know, street side newsstand like uh, Natural History or Psychology Today. That so far we haven't managed to figure out how to do that. What kind of relationship do you think exists between the discipline of anthropology in the United States and the general public? Well, as our graduate students learn in the history of anthropology in the United States, uh, anthropologists at one time in the early part of the 20th century played a really important public role. Franz Boas wrote about race and testified to Congress about various issues of the day. For one example, and Margaret Mead, everyone knows, uh, even, well, she had a postage stamp with her picture on it. So she was a very prominent uh, writer for the public and speaker for the public on issues about families and sexuality and marriage. And it is a mystery what happened sort of after Margaret Mead and her colleague Ruth Benedict, who also was very active uh, writing for the public. The discipline became more insular. Uh, anthropologists began more speaking to themselves through scholarly discourse rather than uh, trying to write in a way that was more understandable and accessible. I think it's partly because anthropology tends to have a critical view of social institutions, not to say that social institutions are bad, not that kind of critical, but to question whether they work as they're supposed to and to question whether they work as they are said to. So there's a kind of, um, it it, it can be understood to be a little bit threatening if an anthropologist studies medicine and questions how medicine operates or how doctors interact with patients, for example. 
it can be a little threatening. And so um, as the tide turns and things become a bit more conservative, it becomes more difficult to get public space, such as in newspapers, book reviews, and so on, that cover what work is being done in the academy and anthropology. But that's a very partial answer. It's also probably because it came to be less valued in general in the academy to speak out to the public as if that were a kind of second-class thing to do. And the things that mattered were scholarly journals, scholarly books, uh, scholarly presentations and lectures. But the tide is, I believe, now turning as... um, perhaps simply because funding has become harder to get through the federal government, people have begun to ask the question, if we want to get a share of the remaining federal funds, then the public needs to value what we do. If we're publicly funded, then the public really needs to be given a chance to say whether what we do is valuable or not. And partly because of the uh, change from a plenty of federal funding to a more restricted set of federal funds, I think this question has become more of a burning issue. And so you see small changes like in the academy now on your CV, it's perfectly acceptable to have, I mean, imagine that, a section on public service where you could say you were on the radio or you uh, published in a magazine or an op-ed in a newspaper or an article in Anthropology Now. This has become part of the standard valued professional portfolio. So I guess we're in an era where the door might be opening up to another kind of, um, such as we had with Franz Boas and Margaret Mead, at least I hope so. The world of people trying to reach out beyond the academy is growing all the time. You can find many, many blogs on the web that are written by anthropologists. Not all of them are for other people other than anthropologists. A lot of them are sort of talk within the discipline, but the number of people posting blogs and um, news items and all kinds of things on Twitter and Facebook and uh, and all the different kinds of websites has grown exponentially in the last, say, three years, three or four years. What kind of responsibility do you think scholars, anthropologists in particular, have to the non-academic general public? Well, I guess one answer to that is that if our research is funded by public funds, by federal funds, as mine is at the moment, we are utterly and absolutely responsible to, to the public uh, to be accountable for why the research matters and and for communicating the essence of it and the details of it to a much wider audience than just our comfortable collegial brothers and sisters. So I take it very seriously, and recently the NSF, for example, one of the funding agencies, requires you to put it in your grant proposal. How how will you reach out beyond the academy to make sure your research is disseminated, and by what means will you do this? So you have to already, now, uh, unlike earlier, you have to explain how you plan to do this and exactly what it will consist of, your measures to disseminate your research. So I take it very seriously. It's hard to remember that our, you know, glimpse into history is rather short, but if we remember the days of Boaz and Margaret Mead, it was normal then for academics to take this responsibility in hand and to do things that took time and effort, takes time, a huge amount of time to write 
with clarity so that you explain your assumptions rather than just assuming everybody already had that in graduate school. It takes a lot of time to present written material or any kind of material in a way that's gripping, that has a narrative structure that's, that makes you want to read on, like essays in The New Yorker, where you just can't put it down because it's just leading the words are just leading you on to find out what happens. It takes time, and none of us really have been trained in this. So one of our responsibilities is to learn how to write this way or how to present materials in a way that, that people will find just that gripping. And in terms of the history being easy to forget and Franz Boas and Margaret Mead being really not that long ago, there was a, an effort that was launched by Jerome Brenner in the 1960s called MACOS, Man, A Course of Study, M-A-C-O-S. And it's been forgotten about, but you can find out about it on the web. The materials have been archived on the web. And there's a wonderful film about MACOS. It was for middle school students. The curriculum lasted an entire year. And it, it was introductory anthropology for middle school students. It is absolutely to die for. They had a case study of the Netzlik Eskimo. They watched all the old ethnographic films, of which I, we now know were somewhat staged. But nonetheless, they learned how to make an igloo. They learned how to make uh, jackets and clothing out of seal skins using paper patterns. And it was immensely successful as far as the teachers and students are concerned. But then it was shut down um, because it was considered to be very threatening in the sense that it was argued if children could could realize that there were other societies and cultures formed on different assumptions about the world, about who made the world, about where the world came from, about what it was to be human, what was marriage, what was being a brother or a sister, what was important about life, about death, if that could all be differently understood, then why would these children follow their parents' advice or their parents' model or their parents' religion or their parents' political views. So it was considered to be very threatening, and it ended after, I don't know, a few years. We would all say, well, that's not what happens to students in anthropology classes. They don't give up their family's religion and politics necessarily. They broaden their worldview, and they may have different views of what's going on in the world, but they don't necessarily give up their personal beliefs. It's a, it's a mistake to think that the one follows from the other. So I'm hopeful that we probably won't have another Makos, but that we could have similar kinds of things that could reach out and build a base for understanding what anthropology is about. Could you give us a summary of some of your own recent research? Lately, I have been working on what's called the anthropology of science, which means that this is oversimplifying it, but instead of going to another culture, as I did when I was in graduate school, I went to live in Chinese villages and learn Chinese and try to understand what it meant to be uh, a person in that society. You instead go to um, an, a kind of occupational group of scientists such as immunologists or uh, biomedical researchers of one kind or another or uh, psychiatrists. Uh, and presently I'm working in a number of labs in experimental psychology and the reason for this is that it's a science that has immense power and a very important presence in our daily lives. Their findings are often picked up, unlike anthropology, <laughs> are often picked up by newspapers and magazines. 
and presented as uh, the latest information about oh, uh, relationships between men and women or what's involved as you grow older or what's happening with um, the way parents raise children and so on and so on. So it's a dominant discipline. It has a great impact on our understanding of what it is to be human. And yet no one has really looked into how this knowledge is formed. There are historians of psychology that have looked into the history of the field. But what I want to do is hang out with them see how they devise experiments, what they think is a good experiment, and how they gather material, what it means to have data in, a, in an experiment when the data are produced by human beings. So it's the puzzle for me is how can you run experiments in which the participants are just ordinary people like you and me? How, how can you hold them still enough to produce data that's comparable? So I'm doing this by being a volunteer in lots and lots of uh, psychological experiments. Uh, some of them involve being shocked. Uh, some of them involve making kind of difficult choices and all the time they're measuring my reactions. So this is a long-term project. I'm just at the beginning and one of the characteristics of this research is that you don't really know where you're going to end up. I don't know what I might conclude. I hope what I'll be able to do is show the process by which psychologists reach their conclusions and the paradoxes and puzzles that they have to work with. But it, it's an unfolding um, kind of full of the details of everyday life of, for a psychologist in a psychology lab, how it's taught to their students, how they learn to present materials in conferences, uh, what they consider difficult, what they consider easy, how they regard their own history, and so on. So I can't really tell you where I'm headed, but um, fieldwork is very addictive. And uh, it's like, it isn't Indiana Jones after the great treasure buried in the dirt, but there is a treasure there, and that is to understand how a world other than your own makes sense to the people who live in it. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated speaking with you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Anthronow podcasts can be found online at www.anthronow.com.